Hello, all. Greetings and welcome to Hear Her Sports, the female athlete podcast. I'm your host, Elizabeth Emery. I'm super thrilled about this week's episode with Title IX expert Sarah Axelson, who is here to share some really interesting info about the 1972 law in honor of its 48th anniversary on June 23rd. Sarah mentioned in our conversation that one hope she has for the future is greater education about Title IX. So I'm really grateful that you guys are here. I learned a bunch from Sarah. If you want to find out more, there are lots of resources on the show notes page of this episode. Please take advantage of those links I put together for every episode. For example, if you missed the webinar, Girls of Color and Title IX, An Unfulfilled Promise, put on by the Women's Sports Foundation featuring LaChina Robinson, Billie Jean King, Candace Parker, Dawn Staley, Nina Chandri, along with today's guest, Sarah Axelson, it is well worth a listen. That link is at hearhersports.com on Sarah's episode page. Well, let's meet Sarah. With me today is Sarah Axelson, Senior Director of Advocacy at the Women's Sports Foundation, and we are going to talk about Title IX in honor of the 48th anniversary of Title IX on June 23, 2020. Sarah is a Title IX expert focusing her work on grassroots and national initiatives that educate the public and advocate for gender equity in sports. Sarah was part of the team behind the research Beyond X's and O's, Gender Bias in Coaches of Women's College Sports. As a result of this research, she helped launch the Women's Sports Foundation's Sports Advocacy Network in 2016. This year, Sarah helped launch Women's Sports Foundation's The Equity Project, which brings together individuals and organizations that aim to impact participation, policy, representation, and leadership in sports in sustainable and measurable ways. Sarah is also a lifelong athlete, considers herself a byproduct of Title IX, and was fortunate to participate in four years of NCAA Division III varsity softball. She graduated magna cum laude with a Bachelor of Science in Psychology from the University of Mary Washington, and recently received her Master's of Public Administration degree through the Executive MPA program in the Mark School of Public and International Affairs at Baruch College. She was named the 2018 Graduate in Residence at the University of Mary Washington's Department of Psychology Science. Welcome, Sarah. It's really great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me, Elizabeth. It's great to be with you today. Yeah, and I'm excited to learn more about Title IX, particularly at this time of the anniversary and also the changes we just saw out of the Department of Education. So Title IX can be really confusing. And I've actually, while I was preparing, I read that one of the criticisms is that it is purposely that way. But let me start with reading what it actually states. No person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any educational program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. Can you explain what that actually means? Yeah. So, and that's the law, right? That 37 simple words, that's exactly what the law says. And so once it was passed, it was passed as part of a much larger bill around higher education. This was Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972. And so this part dealt with sex discrimination. And so once the law was passed, then it goes into the process of the regulations being developed and the law interpreted. Title IX applies to every aspect of education and any educational program that receives federal funds. So that can mean your elementary school all the way up through, you know, colleges and universities, any educational program that receives any form of federal funds, whether it's federal financial aid or, you know, federal money to help supplement free and reduce lunch for students, all of that counts as federal funding. Interesting. And so all schools who receive federal funding must comply with Title IX, which means that they can't discriminate on the basis of sex. That covers everything from math class, science class, 
continuing education, career and technical education, pregnant and parenting students. But the part that I focus on with my work at the Women's Sports Foundation is its application to athletics. Sure. The United States is unique in the sense that sports are attached to our educational institutions. But that is largely because sports is an educational opportunity, right? For those who are listening, if you're an athlete, you know what sports teaches you. It teaches you time management, leadership, how to deal with adversity. There are so many lessons that I have learned through sport in my life that sport truly is part of our educational experience, especially the fact that they're attached to our schools in this country. And it also so impacts what happens after you get out of school. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's the leadership benefits, right? That's just the way that especially women learn skills through sports and how those can translate into career success. There's actually some great research out of Ernst & Young that points to the women in C-suite positions, right? So that's your CEO, COO, all of those chief positions. And the fact that the majority of them have played sports, the majority of them link their career success, at least in part to their sport experience. Right. You know, we can't underscore it enough, the benefits that women and girls receive from playing sport. So talk about what Title IX actually means for athletic departments, both at the collegiate level and K through 12. So for the athletic portion of Title IX, it covers three main areas. It covers participation, it covers benefits and services, and it covers athletic-related financial aid, so athletic scholarships. Obviously, the athletic scholarships really only apply at the college level, mainly at NCAA Division One and Two, and any other types of sport governance organizations that award scholarships. But starting at the top, participation. Participation, schools have three ways. There's a three-part test. They need to choose one of these three ways in order to comply with this first part of Title IX. So they can use the first prong, which is called proportionality. And that essentially says that the school is saying that their athletic body is proportional to their undergraduate population, right? Or their student body. So if let's say you're at a college or university, your student body undergraduate population is 57% female. We would expect if you're saying that you're complying with the proportionality prong, that your student athlete population is close to 57% female. Now, there's some wiggle room. There isn't like a hard, fast number of you're allowed to be a certain number away from what that 57% is, but you, you need to be close and you need to try to be consistently close to that 57%. If a school was at, you know, let's say 57% undergraduate students were female, but their student athlete population was 45% female, and they're saying they're meeting proportionality, that could be problematic. Right. But the true question becomes, what does that gap mean, right? So if you're at 45, we think you should be at 57. What does that 12 percentage point gap mean, right? Does it mean a difference of three participation opportunities or does it oh, mean a right. difference of 50 participation right. opportunities? Right. And so that's proportionality, right? Saying that our student athlete population is proportional to our student body. What is a student athlete? Is that anybody on any sort of athletic team, whether it's intramural or competitive or intercollegiate, anything? No, when we're talking about it, we're talking about for like varsity athletics, right? Okay. For your main 
athletics intramurals would be judged amongst themselves. Got it. So schools have to comply with the participation requirement, but there's a three-part test that they can use to comply with Title IX. So they only have to do one of those three requirements. The first is proportionality, which we just covered. The second is a history of continuing to add opportunities for the underrepresented sex. And this often was used right at the very beginning with Title IX, right in the 70s and 80s when it was first really being enacted and enforced, and often when schools were going from single sex to co-ed. And so schools had the opportunity to show that they were consistently adding opportunities for the underrepresented sex, which in most cases is women, right? So if they can say every three years we're adding a sport for women, right? We don't have the budget to just like en masse add 10 sports right now, but every few years we're adding teams, then, you know, that's an acceptable way to meet that participation requirement of Title IX. So the continuing practice of program expansion, is this prong being used now regularly? And the reason I ask that is because I struggle with it a little bit that, you know, 48 years later, we're giving leeway to make, you know, tiny incremental changes. Well, so, and there have been, and I would have to go look through some like case law stuff to get you the exact stuff, but I believe there have been court cases in the past that have given some direction on what time frame is acceptable, right? And that's why it's not like every 15 years we added a team, but it's really meant to say, okay, listen, we recognize we're out of compliance today and tomorrow we're adding a team. And in two years, when we get the budget, we're adding another team. But part of the issue with Title IX is that schools don't have to self-report what prong they're using. Mm. Right. And so we have something that's called the EADA, which is the Equity and Athletics Disclosure Act. And there's actually a website where every year the Department of Education publishes information from higher education institutions that they report in. So the EADA was enacted a number of years ago now. And so every year institutions of higher education report relevant stats to the Department of Ed and they publish the information on this website. So somebody can go to this website and either download it for all institutions that report or they can look up specific conferences, institutions, states, things like that. And they can actually pull information to see what the undergraduate population is, what the student athlete population is. You can look at numbers of coaches. You can look at athletic scholarship numbers. So you can get a sense of a school's compliance, but the only thing you can truly tell from that EADA data is the proportionality and not all schools are using proportionality. Mm. The third prong is meeting the interests and abilities of your students and your student athletes. There isn't an exact science to how you do that, right? So you can take surveys, but surveys can't be the only thing that you use. And for colleges, it's hard to say you're meeting the interests and abilities because your students are self-selecting based on the sports that you offer. So for colleges to assess the interests and abilities, you also need to take a step back and look at what sports are popular in, you know, high schools where you generally recruit student athletes from, what sports are popular in your conference, right? It goes beyond just your immediate student body because there's that self-selection that happens for colleges. If I'm a softball athlete and I want to play softball, I'm not coming to your school if you don't have softball. 
Right. Right. <laughs> right. So for colleges, it's a little different, but for, for high schools, you can take part in a number of things to assess what are the interests and abilities of your students and decide whether or not you're meeting the Title IX requirements in that way for participation. But all that to say, if you have students at a school knocking down your door saying, we're interested in a team and they have enough kids to fill a roster and there's competition in the area, it's a sanctioned sport in the state, all that kind of stuff that would go into a sport experience, you really can't say you're meeting the interests and abilities of your students anymore. Right. And so then the question becomes, are you proportional? Right. Okay. So it's only one of those three prongs that a school has to meet. You don't have to do all three. So Title IX never says what sport a school has to offer. It just says when you offer sports, once you choose to offer sports, you need to do so in a way that does not discriminate on the basis of sex. One of the things when I was doing the research I was interested in finding out was that the money spent on athletics doesn't need to be proportional. Mm -hmm. Except for in scholarship money. Yeah. That, that does. And so that gets into that second big bucket of Title IX, right? That benefits and services portion of Title IX that I talked about earlier. And so what that means is that every, basically everything, right? Sometimes it's called the laundry list. Everything that goes into your sport experience, whether it's you know the coaches, both the quality and the number of coaches that are provided, the facilities, the uniforms, the transportation, support services like media, sports information directors, you know, whether it's a pep band or a cheer squad, all of that stuff, right, that helps support a sport experience for an athlete, all of that, for the most part, falls under that benefits and services. And so, you know, if a school decides to provide uniforms to its teams, so number, number one, let's rewind for a second and say, Title IX is a total program law, right? So what that means is that it's not comparing sport by sport. It's taking the entirety of what the girls or women have and comparing it to the entirety of what the men or boys have. So if you offer football for boys, it doesn't mean that you have to offer football for girls, right? And it doesn't right. mean that just because there's no female equivalent for football that you get to treat football as its own class, right? It's still hundred boys or men that are getting that sport experience that you would want to have equity for, for the girls. So title nine looks at everything happening within, you know, for the boys compared to everything happening for the girls. So if a school decides we're going to provide top-notch uniform and equipments for all of our student athletes, if you happen to have sports on the boys side, let's say football, right? There's a lot of equipment involved maybe it's ice hockey, right? Some of the sports that have more equipment or facility fees involved, that's okay if the actual dollar amount is more, as long as it's not a discriminatory reason for why the dollar amount is different. So basically, if a school says, you know, we're going to take 10% of our boys and 10% of our girls and outfit them with the top-notch equipment, the top-notch uniforms, it's okay if let's say it's just, you know, they decide 10% is boys lacrosse and girls lacrosse. Boys lacrosse has contact and has more pads involved, right? Compared to girls lacrosse. So if that dollar amount mm -hmm. is different, that's okay. As long as what the girls are getting is still the top-notch equipment and what the boys are getting is still the top-notch equipment. Interesting. Yeah. Why has Title IX been as controversial as it has been? I mean, right from the get-go. 
Well, I think a lot of people, you know, it largely skated under the radar to some extent, at least its application to sports. Mm. I mean, you read it at the top. It's 37 words. It makes no mention of sports. And so once I think it became clear that it would apply to sports, then suddenly, you know, you started seeing certain organizations or, you know, elected officials trying to do things that would change the way that it's applied. You know, it's always challenging for people to feel like they're being forced to change, right? And Mm -hmm. at that time, very few schools were offering women's sports or girls' sports, right? If you go back and look at the participation opportunities, the numbers are dramatic in terms of the gap between men and women and boys and girls at the college and high school level pre-Title IX. But we can look at those stats. Girls today still have not reached the level of participation that boys in 1971 had. Wow. Right? So like we've seen this huge exponential growth. We know that Title IX has done great things in education for women and for men too, right? Like men have been able to pursue non-traditional fields as well because of Title IX, because they're not allowed to be discriminated against, whether it's, you know, nursing school or things like that, that at one time were considered non-traditional for men. So Title IX is not a a law about treating women equally. It's about not discriminating on the basis of sex and education. Right. This is probably a good time to bring up that compliance is really low. I mean, I I think I read it on the Women's Sports Foundation site that 80 to 90 percent of educational institutions are not in compliance with Title IX. As it applies to athletics. Yeah. And so, and and some of that is based off of that bit that I said at the front about the Equity and Athletics Disclosure Act, right? And the information that's available mm-hmm. there looking at proportionality, but also looking at scholarships. So that's that third part that I haven't talked about yet. So the third part of Title IX in athletics says that schools need to award equitable athletic-related financial assistance. So that's athletic scholarships. So if you look at what we call an unduplicated count of athletes, right? So if you are a volleyball athlete and a softball athlete for participation, you count twice because those are two participation opportunities. But for scholarships, if you're on a full ride, your scholarship only counts once because you are one student receiving that educational opportunity. And so if you look at that unduplicated count, we would expect, right? And what the law says, what court rulings have said is that that breakdown of athletic scholarships should be within plus or minus one percentage point of the participation. Mm -hmm. So your participation is 49% female and 51% male. You would expect the athletic scholarship breakdown to be anywhere from 48 to 50% going to female student athletes. And I think the athletic scholarships are one of the easiest ways to understand why this is an educational experience, right? You think about how expensive higher education is in our country and athletes are getting scholarships to attain that educational experience. Of course, we'd want that to be shared equitably. So where are we right now with simply the scholarship portion of compliance? There's a huge gap. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it is it's an absurd number. (laughs) It is like in the, I want to say more than a hundred million. And and I feel like we're gonna, I don't want you to quote me on that until I can get that. But, (laughs) but, you know, for, for scholarships, the, it's a dramatic difference. 
and that's concerning because these are educational opportunities and we want women to be able to receive that same educational experience as men. Since I've started doing this podcast, one of the discussions that really gets my hair raising on the back of my neck is this idea that change is really difficult. The ship is hard to move. I mean, particularly with scholarship money, mm -hmm. that could be decided tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and there's also this like extra layer of, and this is probably too far into the weeds for the podcast, but like then there's this extra layer of the fact that if we're looking, right, like let's just use the NCAA. I know there are other governance organizations of college sports, but the NCAA actually puts scholarship limits on certain sports, mm, right? And so they'll say whether a sport is either what's called a headcount sport or an equivalency sport. And so headcount sports are, you're allowed to have this many heads can be counted that have scholarships or an equivalency sport is saying you can award up to the equivalent of, you know, let's say five scholarships. So you can have 10 athletes on half scholarships or you can have five athletes on full scholarships. So I think part of the struggle too is that when a governance organization decides scholarship limits, and some of them might be put in place for good reasons like competitive equity and cost controls and things like that. But part of the issue too is that there are some schools who will say, well, we're awarding the maximum amount of scholarships that the NCAA says that we're allowed to award, right? And so they're doing mm -hmm. everything in their power to give athletic scholarships, which is not a bad thing, but because of whatever sports they've chosen and what the scholarship limits are on those respective sports, sometimes it makes them out of compliance with Title IX. So how do we deal with compliance and how is enforcement being done? I mean, I, I, I'm still really struggling with we're celebrating the 40th anniversary of this thing and we're still so far from compliance. Yeah. And I mean, we're hosting a virtual conversation on Tuesday, focusing in on the unfulfilled promise of the law, right? We are almost mm. 50 years into this. Tuesday marks the 48th anniversary. This year is the 48th anniversary of Title IX. And we still see high school girls receiving more than a million fewer opportunities than boys, right? And at the high school level, you would expect that you would have about a 50-50 breakdown, right? So it should be shared right. pretty equitably if that goal is, if the ultimate goal is proportionality. So at the high school level, girls are receiving more than a million opportunities, fewer than boys. And then there's also all the other parts of Title IX that are harder to measure unless you're physically on the ground in that school. So the things like uniforms or facilities or transportation and so part of the issue with Title IX is that the onus is on the person who is being discriminated against to first know their rights, know how to change it, and have the ability to speak up and advocate for change and then see it through until there actually is change. Right. Right? You know, it's interesting that you bring that up because as I was researching to talk to you, it suddenly occurred to me that one of my beefs with the MAC tournament here in Cleveland, Ohio, is probably a Title IX violation. Mm -hmm. All the women's games are like 11 a.m. None of the concession stands are open. Wow. Yeah. You know, and it's interesting once there are governance structures in place that are setting rules where it's like the institution needs to comply with the law. NCAA doesn't need to comply with the law, but they're the ones setting rules, but they're governed by membership. 
it goes for the same thing with like state high school associations and things like that. Some of whom, you know, have been, you know, in courts of law decided that they were state actors and they did have to comply with the law. But if we're going to make the assumption that as a governance organization, some of these structures in place are not educational institutions and are not doing something that would require them to comply with the law, but sometimes they're making decisions that affect Title IX compliance, mm-hmm. right? And so it takes the the school, right? People at the school need to be educated on the law. They need to be motivated enough to be compliant that they raise their concerns when decisions are being made that may not be equitable, that may not be compliant. You know, for me, speaking personally in my high school, there were things now looking, right? Like I didn't know the law when I was 15. Of course. Right? Like (laughs) now I'm like, holy cow, I wonder if what 15 year old me would have done had had I truly understood the law. But what I will tell you what happened is that I think it was my junior year of high school, a new athletic director came in and suddenly there were changes. Fascinating. Yeah. Right. And now looking back on it, that was a new AD. He understood the law and he made the changes that were necessary to be compliant, right? Whereas the former was just, we're doing it this way because we've always done it this way. And suddenly somebody who cares about the law and cares about equity and has the power to make decisions decided to make changes that would treat the girls equitably. I always find that laundry list that you were talking about really fascinating because I think those things really have huge impact, Huge, even if they don't seem like they're going to. I think you're right because it also, things on that laundry list dictate to the participants and to the students at the school, right? How a school values those athletes. Exactly. And if you don't feel valued or you don't think you will be valued when you join a certain team or if you were to go out for a certain team, why would you go out for it in the first place? Right. Right. So that's part of the struggle, too, is making sure that that laundry list is also compliant. Because if you have girls who have facilities that either they're, you know, divots in the field and it's unsafe or the infield is rocky they don't have a working scoreboard. All those little things are signals. It sends a signal to them about how they are valued and they might choose to go spend their time somewhere else where they are better valued. Or they'll stay there sort of sucking up the devalued attitude. Yeah. I mean, it could be either one, right? And I'm sure that there are girls in both camps, but I think, you know, we run the risk of girl and, and we see that girls are leaving sports. By the age of 14, Girls are dropping out of sports at twice the rate of boys. And you're saying that that, at least in part, is because the sports that they had been taking part in just didn't value them as athletes. I think it's part, there's so much that goes into that dropout rate. Of course. Right? Of and course, we've yeah. done plenty of research. And if anyone's interested in it, I encourage you to go to our website and look at our long history of research that we have available on the Women's Sports Foundation's website. Because there really is so much that goes into that dropout rate. Certainly how you view that sport experience and how you feel valued and what that experience is like for you is going to decide whether or not you stay with it. Wow, I had never I had never thought about that. Cool. Well, let's uh, 
get into some current issues like the impact of COVID-19 on Title IX and compliance and anything that you're worried about going forward for women's sports? Yeah. So, I mean, we're definitely in unique and unprecedented times. And I think there's a few things going on, right? We see the pandemic has certainly caused a lot of sports to be canceled, but you know, the pandemic did not discriminate (laughs) based on gender that has caused (laughs) everyone to cancel. And so it'll be interesting to see though, what we are seeing is that a lot of schools are cutting budgets across the board, right? So whether it's because their enrollment is going down, there are many reasons that schools seem to be and universities seem to be tightening the budget. And so that includes athletics. And so when athletic budgets get cut, sometimes sports get cut, which is never what we want to see, right? Like the Women's Sports Foundation believes in the power of sport and that sport experience for the student athletes that participate. So the more sports, the better. But when a school decides that the budget is such that they need to cut a sport, unfortunately, sometimes Title IX is used as the reason when really it's about the institution's priorities, right? And which sports they value and the budget. So it's a budgetary decision, but it's easier to point to Title IX as the reason. So one of my concerns is that as athletic budgets are cut, And we're already seeing it, that sports are being cut. And so the question becomes, are women disproportionately impacted by that? Right. And are schools staying compliant with Title IX? Are they, you know, already non-compliant and they're further exacerbating existing inequities? There's a lot of situations that can happen. So that's one thing, certainly, that I think we're looking at as far as the pandemic and the implications of COVID-19 on school sports. Mm -hmm. Anything else? I mean, it's not related to the pandemic, but I would say, you know, we've seen recently the focus on racial equality in our country, right? And the and the protests that are happening and the unrest, and it feels like there is momentum building in a way that I don't think I've experienced in my lifetime. And I'm hopeful that this will stay and we will see more momentum for racial equity. And one thing that I want to point to, which I think not everybody realizes, is that Title IX has been effective, right? And we still see gaps, but it has been mainly effective in increasing opportunities for suburban white girls. Hmm. So there is research, and it's actually research out of the National Women's Law Center from a few years back, which looks at the impact of race and gender, right? And the impact of Title IX for girls of color. And what that shows us is that girls of color are doubly hit by race and gender. So the gender gap that might exist in high white schools. So, you know, schools that are 90% or more white versus schools that are 90% or more minority, the gap is way bigger at the schools that are 90% minority. Hmm. And so girls of color are being left behind, right? So like we often look at this from a gender perspective, but we also need to look at racial equity because this is also about making sure that all girls have access it's not just girls as a larger group, because what we're seeing is that girls of color are impacted in a different way than white girls. And we need to be cognizant of that. And we need to make sure that girls of color are receiving equitable opportunities and that they are able to reap the benefits that we see sport provide. And are you talking at the collegiate level or at K through 12? No. So that's actually the K through 12. That research is on K through 12. So Something that I didn't know until I read this research, and I think a lot of people don't realize, is that 
from that research, 42% of our nation's schools are either 90% or more white or 90% or more minority, right? And so then when, when statewide resources are distributed, more of the resources go to those high white schools versus the high minority schools. So the high minority schools often get a smaller slice of the pie, right? If we want to talk in some analogies, they get a smaller slice of the pie, but then when they're splitting up their slice, they're giving a bigger piece to the boys, right? So now you see that like the high minority schools are getting fewer resources to begin with, but then when they divide them, the girls are getting even less. So that gender gap at high minority schools is even bigger than the gender gap that still exists at the high white schools. I, I promise I am going to ask you about some good things about Title IX. <laughs> <laughs> but first, I want to ask you about some unexpected impact of Title IX. And one of the things I know that you know a lot about it are female coaches. Yeah. And there are far fewer female coaches. I think that's by percentage now than there were in 1972. Yes. And yes, it's absolutely by percentage. And I think that that's perhaps an unintended consequence and something that folks don't often know about or understand, but prior to Title IX, 90% of coaches of women's teams were women. That number now is down to about 40%. Follow the money. Right. Like there's a whole lot of reasons why that happened. And there are a lot of things that factor into that. So number one, pre-Title IX, most often, and, and we're talking about college teams when I gave those stats. So prior to Title IX, college athletic departments tended to be split. So there was the men's athletic department and there was the women's athletic department. Once Title IX came to be, a lot of those departments merged. And so I think in all but one instance, the man who was in charge of the men's athletic department became head of the combined department, whereas right. in the past... It was often, you know, women who were working in women's sports because they were often doing it for love of the game, right? right and right. not for the money that was there. Right. And so once those departments combined, you see it's often a white man who stays in charge of that combined department. And, you know, the research shows us that we hire people from our networks. Our networks are made of people who look like us, who have similar backgrounds. We're more likely to hire people who we can relate to, who might have a similar, whether it's an educational experience, a similar you know, background to us. And so who does that white man who is now in charge of the combined department start hiring? Right. Right? People who look like him. And on top of that, suddenly the jobs coaching women went from like, you know, a small stipend or maybe you get enough money to cover your transportation to actually being a salaried position and being desirable. And it suddenly became much more acceptable right. for men to coach women's sports, right? You can look, I, I think Pat Summit is a great example. You can look at her when she first started, you know, she's doing the team's laundry, driving the team you know, van, <laughs> making right. some absurdly small amount of money, which I don't have off the top of my head right now, to, you know, at the point of her retirement, making millions. Right. Right. So that shows you the change in the investment in women's sports from pre-Title IX to post-Title IX and how you could see that some men involved in sports might suddenly decide like, oh, yeah, maybe I'll, maybe I'll coach women. <laughs> but what also happened is that the number of women coaching men's teams has remained pretty stagnant. Right. Women coaching men's college teams is in the single digits. I think it's somewhere around like 
three to five percent. Wow. So, you know, we we've got a long way to go. You know, we've made so much progress, but just because you see women having opportunities, women playing in some professional leagues, it doesn't mean that we've reached full equity. There's so much more room for improvement and for advancement for women in sports. Well, since you sort of brought up the good stuff, so talk about the good stuff (laughs) of what Title IX has actually accomplished. And, you know, you said you were a product of Title IX. Yeah. You know, what have you seen in your lifetime? What have you seen in your line of work? Yeah. So I think Title IX has certainly, it's opened the doors. It's opened the doors of opportunity. And outside of athletics, too, you can look at some of the stats around higher education, whether it's medical doctors, law degrees, advanced degrees, we've seen women increase tremendously in the share of those types of degrees that they're receiving. So Title IX has done a ton, right? We went from schools saying like, no, thanks, we, we've we got enough women or like women don't need to apply to our institution. We're all set, thanks to women actually earning sometimes a majority of the degrees, right? Sometimes as much as like 57% of an undergraduate population, sometimes at some schools are women. So we see women earning more degrees. And in athletics, it has opened doors and so many more girls and women have the opportunity to play, have the opportunity to reap those benefits. And I think that that's huge, right? We, we see the Ernst & Young research that says that women have more success in their careers because of sport. So it really is a lifelong benefit of playing sports. So it's not all gloom and doom, right? <laughs> we, we've seen advancements for women and the benefits that sport provide. But the, the bottom line, right, is that we want to make sure that all girls and all women have that opportunity in an equitable way, that they have that same opportunity to reap those benefits as their male counterparts. What would you like to see, and I'm going to ask you this in a short term, because I know long term, we'd like to see complete equity, but in the short term, what would you like to see happen in regards to Title IX and equity in the sports? You know, I think for starters, I'd love to see greater understanding of the law. Mm. I think there are so many people who don't understand the law that we're not going to get to compliance with the law if the majority of people either aren't aware or aren't educated on it, right? So it's education, awareness, and compliance. We need all three of those factors. And so for starters, I would love to see student-athletes knowing their rights, feeling Mm -hmm. comfortable speaking up, right? And I think oftentimes either they're told, like, you know, you should be thankful for what you have, right? I've heard that. Or... Yeah, but but that's that's often the sentiment of like, be thankful for what you have. Don't rock the boat. Don't raise your voice. But you know what? Like you are legally protected, right? You legally should be receiving an equitable experience and you shouldn't be discriminated against. These are educational institutions. These are federal dollars that are at play. It's educational money. It's an educational experience. Girls and women are entitled to those same benefits. Where do you think the lack of education and the confusion is coming from just lack of education? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, a little bit, right? And, And I think some of it, too, is that especially now as we get further away from the law, you know, there's that pre Title IX generation who knows what it was like before that law was put in place. 
right? And they're the ones who I've certainly learned from who have said, you know, this is what it was like before. Oh, it was stinky poo. And, and I think there's a fine balance between having your eye on the future and also understanding the past. Right. And I think too often we probably don't fully appreciate or understand the past. You know, the, the Women's Sports Foundation has a grant program in the name of Tara Vandeveer, who's a highly successful women's basketball coach at a Stanford University. So we have the Tara Vandeveer Fund for the Advancement of Women in Coaching. And it's a grant program that we provide grants to institutions who are looking to bring more female coaches into the pipeline. So looking to get more women into the coaching pipeline. And we had, you know, some conversations with some of the first year cohort that we just awarded. So we just finished that first year of the grant program. And some of them hadn't known some of the history, right? Tara mm. talked about, you know, what it was like when she first started coaching, what it was like when she tried to play as a kid. And some of the, you know, the coaches who are younger than me, right, they're out of college, but they're still pretty young and they, they just didn't know. And so yes, be thankful for what you have, but understand how much it took to get to where we are and that we're still not done. That's super interesting. How old are you? I am almost 34. I'll be 34 this summer. Got it. Yeah. So yeah, you definitely were able to take advantage of Title IX. Yeah. But it goes to show, right, that as I said, you know, my high school softball uniform, I had a coach who had played for our team she was I think she was about 10 years older than me so she came back to coach the uniforms we were wearing oh no were the uniforms <laughs> that she wore when she was a student athlete wow that's something and then fast forward to two years later when you have somebody else in charge who thinks differently of how the law applies right I don't want to speak poorly about the previous athletic director because who knows, right? We've seen research that says that a lot of athletic directors, student athletes, coaches, they've just never been formally taught about the law. Right. So if you've never been taught about the law, how are you going to put policies and procedures in place that comply with it? Is there an organization or somebody in charge of teaching K-12 athletic directors about the law? So there's a few things, right? I think there are some state organizations that do provide... Title IX trainings, but I don't know whether or not those are mandatory or optional, right? And then there are some Title IX organizations, like there's an organization called the TICSA, which is the Association for Title IX Administrators, that does provide trainings on Title IX, and that covers the full spectrum of Title IX. So everything from sexual harassment and misconduct to just general educational experience to athletics. They do teach about athletics in their education, but you need to be somebody who is interested in understanding more about the law and decide that you're going to seek out additional right. education, right. right? Or the school needs to know, school or its administrators need to know that Title IX is important and urge you to become educated. Right, right. Do you want to weigh in on the new rules that were just brought out by the Department of Education? I mean, I can weigh in a little bit. It's a little bit outside of our scope, but I can say a little bit about what we've done. Yeah, that'd be great. Could you also maybe sort of introduce that a little bit of sure. how uh, sexual harassment and abuse does fall under Title IX? Sure. So sexual harassment, sexual misconduct, 
and abuse all falls under Title IX. And some of that is because it often is gender-based, right? And your inability to attain an educational experience, if you're experiencing sexual harassment in school, would fall under Title IX, right? You are being discriminated against because you are a woman being harassed. And that's not to say that there aren't men who experience sexual misconduct and harassment as well, or non-binary folk as well. But Title IX does cover sexual misconduct and harassment and assault. Title IX falls under the Department of Education. And within the Department of Education, there's an office called the Office for Civil Rights. They are in charge of enforcing Title IX. And so, you know, if you're at a school and you decide, hey, something's not right here, you could either, you know, try and deal with it internally and and advocate internally to gain equity. You could file a lawsuit or you could file a complaint with the Office for Civil Rights. So the Office for Civil Rights is in charge of investigating complaints, of putting forth guidance documents. And so they put forward what is called a Dear Colleague letter. And so the Dear Colleague letter essentially tells schools, if we were to come investigate, this is how we would expect you to be compliant with the law on this topic. So Office for Civil Rights has released Dear Colleague letters on numerous topics. The Obama administration released a Dear Colleague letter regarding sexual assault and misconduct, harassment. The Trump administration quickly rescinded that guidance document. You know, sexual misconduct has always been covered under Title IX. It was just that schools finally had a little bit more direction about what was expected of them. What the Trump administration did, Betsy DeVos and the Department of Education, they opened up a public comment period and had a notice of proposed rulemaking. So in terms of the actual vehicle with which they're doing this, it's not that dear colleague letter, which does not carry the weight of law. They are doing a notice of public rulemaking and public comment period, which allows what comes out of that public comment period to carry the weight of law. So... The current Department of Education engaged in that notice of proposed rulemaking, received public comments on what they proposed for Title IX, received more than 100,000 comments on those proposed rules, and just recently released the final version of those rules. There are a lot of organizations that are fighting back on these regulations, folks like AAUW, National Women's Law Center, Know Your Nine, among many others. So there are a lot of folks doing good work in this space. But for the Women's Sports Foundation, looking at the intersection of sport and these new regulations, there are two big concerns with the new regs. And one is that it really limits the scope of authority that a school has when sexual harassment or misconduct occurs. So it no longer requires a school to respond to allegations of misconduct off campus. So that means if a school has, you know, a team house, if the, you know, lacrosse team has a house and something happens at the lacrosse house. Oh, right. The school doesn't need to investigate. Right. Wow. It's how we're interpreting that law, right? There are some aspects of how, you know, if it's a sorority house or fraternity house and the school has authority over that house and it's a sanctioned place, then, you know, it, it changes things a little bit. But let's say it's just off campus housing which often athletes have, right? It changes the school's responsibility to respond in those instances. The second thing that's really concerning is that it gives schools more autonomy to decide who is a mandated reporter. And so what that means is that the previous guidance document from the Obama administration basically told schools, like, basically everybody on your campus needs to elevate 
reports of sexual misconduct unless they're in a very few privileged places, right? So I think like school counseling centers and things like that, where as a student, you would expect privacy and you would expect the expectation that you're disclosing an assault would not necessarily be escalated. There were places that were not considered mandated reporters, but most employees on campus and faculty on campus were considered mandated reporters, which meant that if you learned of an assault or misconduct or harassment, you would have to elevate that to the Title IX office on campus. Right. You had to tell somebody. Right, right. And so the current rule says that schools have the autonomy to decide who on campus is a mandated reporter. So let's take that in a sports experience. If a school decides that coaches are no longer mandated reporters, let's go back to some of our recent headlines around sexual misconduct and assault. Jerry Sandusky at Penn State, Larry Nasser at MSU. There were people in positions of power at those schools who learned of abuse And under the current regulations, if that school decides that those coaches and administrators are not mandated reporters, they wouldn't have to do anything. That is concerning. And so, and oftentimes athletes feel most comfortable disclosing to somebody that, you know, like a coach who is closest to them. You know, as an athlete, you spend so much time with your teammates and your coaches that you know, you may not choose to go to a random stranger in an office on campus, but you might feel comfortable disclosing to a coach. And I think it's actually really interesting because I do think, though, if you went to a college campus today and spoke to current students and talked to them about Title IX, most of them, their first response would be something around sexual assault, misconduct, or harassment, Hmm. right? Whereas I think 10 years ago or more, right, let's say Back when I was in college, if you went to a college campus and asked people about Title IX, they'd say, "Eh, it's why we have women's sports, right? And like, that's, that's about the gist of what people knew about Title IX. And it was almost always first associated with athletics and was known as, you know, the athletics law, the sports law. And it's only recently that the understanding of Title IX and the, the thing that people think to first has changed, there are groups that have already sued the Department of Ed over these regulations and there are states that have sued. So time will tell. I think it'll be interesting to see what happens, but certainly, you know, we need to keep an eye on it and make sure Title IX stays strong and make sure that all of our students, whether they be student athletes and we're talking about in the athletics department or students on campus in schools that all students can receive an educational experience free from discrimination. Right. I was surprised that changes in Title IX have happened pretty regularly. Yeah. I mean, and, and some of it is around whether it's like precedents that are set by lawsuits. But for the most part, a lot of the regs that came out in the 70s still hold true. But there have been additional interpretations and additional clarifications that have happened over time, for sure. Right. Uh, Are you still staying fit and taking part in softball? So I haven't played softball um, in the last few years, but, you know, definitely still consider myself an athlete, whether it's, you know, going to kickboxing pre-pandemic and really itching to get back to the gym once we really get to whatever phase that is considered here in New York. Right. 
but you know, road bike, beach volleyball, I, I certainly stay busy and stay active. Excellent. Are you doing okay in New York? Yeah. Um, you know, we're, I'm on Long Island. We're in phase two right now, really looking forward to getting a haircut in about a week and a half. (laughs) Um, but you know, we've definitely, I I know people who have lost parents. I've had many family members who got sick because they live in the same house as one another. And one person works, you know, in healthcare, working directly with COVID patients. So it certainly has hit close to home. I think probably most people have at least somebody that they can point to that, you know, it's, it's not this fictitious idea. I think we've all seen the impact it can have and, you know, being in a metropolitan area and taking mass transit and, you know, your normal day to day, it really puts things in perspective. And I think we're definitely in for a real change of pace and a, and a new normal. I don't think we're going back to the old normal anytime soon, not for a while, if ever, yeah. um, when we open back up, yeah. but yeah, for the most part, hanging in and thankful to have my health and have those close to me have their health as well. Well, thanks so much. I really appreciate you taking so much time. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. A big thank you to Sarah for being on Hear Her Sports and to the Women's Sports Foundation for making the arrangements. Share this episode with friends so more people will become educated about Title IX and all its complications. Please continue to stay safe in these ongoing days of COVID-19 and please wear a mask. Till next time, bye-bye. Women's Running Stories, where we explore the intersection between running and life. Because every woman who is committed to a running journey has a story to tell, and this is where you'll find those stories. I am host and producer Sheree Louise Turner. I'm a 53-year-old runner, and together with original music by musician and runner Cormac O'Regan, we bring these inspirational stories to life. Please join us to fuel your adventures.